One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alpha. Stephen's on holiday this week, despite Matt Hancock trying his best efforts to stop him over the weekend. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Matt Hancock resignation and what the implications are for the Conservative Party. And you ask us, have Labour MPs been taken by surprise by Keir Summer's leadership? Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, ended up resigning over the weekend um, after pictures that I'm sure all of our listeners have etched into their brains of him kissing (laughs) his aide in his office in the Department of Health in what was seen to be a breach of social distancing rules and also a breach of all of our eyes. Um, So even though he's gone, there's plenty of questions left about what her role was. He was the one who appointed her. She was being paid £15,000 for a non-executive role on the board at the Department of Health. What was she doing there? Why was she hired? Was there a conflict of interest? Were they in a relationship when this happened? And there's also questions over her parliamentary pass, which was sponsored by Lord Bethel, who is a health minister as well. And she didn't work for him. So there's a question of why she had that pass. She's also resigned as well, which I think says something too about what she was doing in that role. And during this story, it's also come out that Matt Hancock was using his personal Gmail account to conduct government business. And obviously, that's a big issue because it makes freedom of information and transparency in general much harder. And he's already been under a great deal of scrutiny for how contracts over the course of the pandemic have been awarded. Alva, you were following the twists and turns of this over the weekend. What do you think is sort of the uh, enduring issue now that he's gone? I like that you went with the the sort of straight down the line kissing description there, because I feel like (laughs) journalists have really got themselves into a tangle over the weekend trying to work out whether to describe that as an embrace or a clinch or snogging or smooching. <laughs> I think embrace is way too grand for it, isn't it? <laughs> well, pa- our former colleague Patrick Maguire has stuck with embracing determinedly the whole way through, which I <laughs> so respect Yeah, because he thinks all these are a little bit beneath him and it's all quite undignified. In terms of, I think, what the, what the enduring question is, I feel like it, it's a difficult one. Clearly... Clearly, Labour has been struggling with this, I think, slightly because there are multiple angles to this story. Matt Hancock has has made it a a COVID breach issue, as have a lot of angry people on Twitter, including plenty of lawyers who've been looking into the legality of, as you say, breaking social distancing rules (laughs) in that way. Whereas, you know, those of us who've been working in Parliament for the past few months will know that certainly Matt Hancock in his role has been allowed under the law to, to be in work the whole time. Um, his advisor, Gina Colodangelo, would have been a, 
allowed to be there too. And the fact is, I think that it's just sort of guidance by the time you get to social distancing in the workplace. It's sort of a where possible thing. But I don't think this is my purely amateur view. I don't think that you would get into serious legal trouble when you're legally allowed to be at work for not adhering perfectly to social distancing guidance in the workplace. But certainly he has apologised for breaking COVID rules. People have been looking into whether there's a sort of serious legal issue there and Labour have sort of been, been going with that. And certainly I think people who at that point in May still were, you know, attending attending funerals and not able to hug anyone or unable to, you know, visit their families in, in care homes or, or whatever it was. I think it still um, has angered and upset lots of members of the public for that reason. But actually, there there's a whole host of other questions, some of them you mentioned, um, which I think maybe haven't been given enough attention. Um, so... Gabriel Pogren at the Sunday Times actually reported quite a lot of this last February, as in in February 2021, um, raising, you know, she was described at that point as a close friend of Matt Hancock. And it was already clear that, you know, they had been friends since university. To my mind, it doesn't really, I don't think it's, it really changes anything, whether they were sleeping together or whether they were just close friends. We already knew in February that she was a close friend of his and he had hired her um, to this role as a non-executive director. Um, And there are really big questions over how that appointment took place. Um, It does seem as though the problem is actually that Matt, Matt Hancock could basically just come up with his own system for appointing her and that he didn't maybe break any rules. Um, But still, um, people will be looking at, you know, as with so many other issues like this around the green sill scandal um people will be looking at whether those processes and rules are even robust enough but then as you say there's all the stuff about her parliamentary pass also questions over whether there was a potential conflict of interest with contracts awarded to the company that her brother works for and um, matt hancock has maintained that there absolutely wasn't and that company has as well but there are just so so many so many issues I think Labour hasn't quite known what to do with this. The clearest thing, actually, that people have been keen to point out today is that Boris Johnson didn't sack him on on Friday. And actually, we had this absurd lobby briefing where the prime minister's spokesperson said right right off right at the start that you know that the prime minister has accepted the apology and considers the matter closed and there was just about half an hour where he he just he just kept batting off questions and saying the same thing if you can imagine how long a half hour conversation is with you know some of Westminster's leading journalists, I think it was quite excruciating and a real example of why they maybe don't want to televise those briefings anymore. But yeah, after that, after that whole palaver on Friday, then Matt Hancock resigned himself on the Saturday, and now ministers who are forced to take the government line are having to sort of elide the fact that Boris Johnson didn't really want this resignation to happen in the first place, which I think maybe does call into question Boris Johnson's judgment on, on things like this. But it just means that, you know, like with a lot of scandals that we've had recently, there's just so many angles to it. 
And now that Matt Hancock has gone, I wonder if people, you know, there'll be a latent interest in, you know, there's been a horrible interest in his wife and, you know, horrible like media interest in her leaving their home and a sort of gossip around all of that. But I wonder if actually the attention to the important questions is just going to wane now that he's stepped back. Yes, I think, I think, you know, there was quite a lot of memeable material over the weekend. I'm sure you've seen the mm-hmm. <laughs> the remix of Shaggy's It Wasn't Me, where there is a line that rhymes PPE with It Wasn't Me. And there was all sorts of excitement, you know, over a proper sex scandal, which we haven't sort of had in, in, in a while. But mm-hmm. actually, that is, I, I do agree with you. I think that's probably one of the one of the least interesting and perhaps least damaging parts of this story because, you know, sex is not as much of a scandal as it used to be in, in the old days where ministers would have to resign simply for, for, for being unfaithful. It's more the circumstances and the context in which it took place, particularly, you know, from a, from a minister who was very vocal in telling us how to conduct our personal lives, you know, over the past 15 months or whatever. So the context is completely different. But also, I think the danger for the government is different. You know, Boris Johnson is is not seen as someone who, you know, lives a personal life to to high moral standards. But the, 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 the public clearly is very forgiving of that and has voted him in as prime minister, etc. So we know that that's not the biggest issue. But one of the issues that does come up in focus groups, does come up in polling and could be damaging for the government is the is this idea that it's one rule for them and another for everyone else. And that's not only on following social distancing rules, you know, as was, you know, very clear, angered the public during Dominic Cummings's trip to, to Durham and, and during Matt Hancock's, um, you know, clinch with, with his aide. But it's also the idea that if you have, you know, the mobile number of a minister or you went to university with them, or if you, you know, if you're, if you're the landlord of a pub in their constituency, then you're more likely to get contracts with, you know, millions of pounds um, of public money to try and respond to the pandemic. And some of those contracts have, have, been shown to be a waste of public money as well. And I think that's something that really does rile people up the more these kind of stories like the Greensill scandal come out. And so I think all this Matt Hancock story is almost like the perfect storm because it does hit the government where it's vulnerable, you know, on standards, on ethics, not, you know, not so much on on the kind of personal morals side of things, because it's clear that, that Boris Johnson has been given a free pass by the public for that. And to be honest, you know, we live in a more socially liberal world than than in the past and, and a sex scandal it isn't really what it what it used to be. I think it has cut through though I was surprised I, I always feel like the barometer is just whether my my friends who aren't interested in politics talk about political stories and ask me about it and really this is the first one since Dominic Cummings where they have been really interested and sharing as you say all these like awful memes there's a very bad one about Matt Hancock and Eat Out to Help Out oh I've seen that one <laughs> yeah yeah I think that's the one in the most in the gutter out of all of them the thing that strikes me working in Westminster and then seeing this story break is the fact that my friends certainly were actually scandalized by the fact of the affair itself not not so much in terms of the the morality of it but just you know that this very instinctive well you know if I was sleeping with someone who I was you know source of the boss of I would be fired immediately I can't believe that you know, he was allowed to do that. Or, you know, or, you know, the fact of, of doing that at work, all these, yeah, I suppose any friends of mine who work in completely different industries have just been a bit baffled that that sort of thing in and of itself 
hasn't been a scandal because I think that's what that's what's really surprised them and then I've sort of had to explain how actually everyone's at it and I think actually the thing that has been slightly unspoken or just alluded to in a lot of the coverage is that there are lots and lots of politicians who are really, really badly placed to comment on this because they mm. risk looking like hypocrites because there are plenty of open secrets in Westminster and even more sort of semi-secret things that people have, you know, have an inkling of. So many people, I think this the entire culture in Westminster, I think it has got better, but certainly there are so many relationships and affairs so many marriages don't really last and the, you know there's a there's a phrase around Westminster you know are you are you married or are you Westminster married <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just think that it has meant that you know this is a this is a rare you know a, a rare clinch to to be made public but actually it's far more common than people outside of this world maybe appreciate. And I think it maybe has made some journalists and other politicians feel a bit uneasy about covering it because it seems a bit imbalanced, you know, in terms of it's different in a way because Matt Hancock was one of the most prominent people telling everybody what the rules were. And he had one of the most difficult briefs during the pandemic. Mm. But, you know, there are, you know, basically everyone in politics is working an important, serious job in a pandemic. And so I, I think that, that that sort of the questions over what makes it different for him when when there are other people who, who are maybe up to similar things makes it all a little bit more uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I definitely think that there is a certain culture at Westminster. And also, you know, this is reflected in other workplaces. There's been a number mm. of polls and surveys released since the story came out showing how many people you know get into relationships in the workplace but also sort of cheat on their partners in the workplace as well because you know you're spending all of your time with with a certain bunch of people maybe not so much anymore and now working from home has become more of a more of a general practice but yeah I mean and also the, the the accusations of it being very much part of the public interests do lie in the fact that this this happened in in the department and it happened with mm-hmm. someone that he'd hired and you're right about the kind of slightly uncomfortable aspect of the fact that she was his aide so you know she was sort of junior to him and I think there would be questions over that that haven't really been a very big part of this story about you know how whether or not that's that's an uncomfortable power dynamic and whether or not you could get away with that at any other workplace by just saying oh that's just my private life because it clearly isn't just a matter of someone's private life and if it were then it wouldn't really be in the public interest to to report it so no I think you're right there's there's all sorts of stuff that I think that is particularly interesting and and resonates with with the general public beyond you know the breaking of the social distancing guidelines or, or whatever the rules were when it happened I just wanted to ask you actually what you thought of the fact that Boris Johnson did seem to you were talking about that lobby briefing where his spokesperson was saying well the matter's closed you know he's apologized he's staying why was Boris Johnson and so keen to sort of stand by his man. We know that he thought that he was effing hopeless from Dominic Cummings' recent <laughs> evidence. Well, I think that it's, I suppose it's two overlapping things. I think that the we, we've already seen that plenty of people don't resign from Boris Johnson's cabinet. Um, it has happened on multiple occasions that someone, you know, Pretty Patel, Gavin mm. Williamson, there have been like quite a few high profile scandals and they never leave. And I think that that is informed by Boris Johnson's personal experience of being sacked from 
the shadow cabinet many yonks ago after lying about having an affair with Petronella Wyatt. I think he's sort of bruised by that in general. He hates the idea of people being hounded out by the media and the leader of the political party being sort of forced to sack somebody. But then, but then in particular, over the issue of affairs, I think he is, is particularly sort of sore about that one. But then also I think that there's the thing that everyone very happily alludes to, which is that he would potentially risk looking like a bit of a hypocrite or cause himself problems potentially down the line, sacking someone for having an affair in this job, given, as you say, his sort of more complicated private life himself. I think maybe as well as, you know, people are sort of describing it as quite shameless or just focusing on the fact that he resents people being hounded out of public life or being pressurised to make this sort of decision to sack a minister. But I actually think maybe it was a more sensible political move that he would have undermined his own credibility slightly or he, he could have created problems for himself either in relation to the past or for the future by by sacking him I think that that was the calculation and I'm sure I basically think he wasn't wrong on that Mm -hmm. and also I suppose if it had looked like he had made the decision then it's sort of open season on trying to work out which ministers or who in Boris Johnson's operation have could have been interpreted to have broken any of the Covid rules ever since they came in, you know, last May, mm. which makes, you know, a lot of people very vulnerable. I mean, we've seen how ambiguous some of these rules are and how open to interpretation they are as well. Mm. And of course, a new health secretary has already been appointed in Sajid Javid. Um, what does that tell us, Alva, about Boris Johnson's thinking? So it's been rumoured for a very, very long time that Sajid Javid was going to be brought back into the fold at the next reshuffle whenever that would be I think that was that was really expected later in the summer but Mm. you know there were suggestions that maybe well I think they're likely to have to stay in post now but you know maybe someone like Matt Hancock or Gavin Williamson or you know another um cabinet minister um, could potentially be moved on and replaced by Sajid Javid so so the return was was has been anticipated for a while and then this vacancy came up and I think that Sajid Javid was the obvious choice because he was in a in a pole position to return to the cabinet anyway and it avoided this kind of domino avoided this sort of domino effect where Boris Johnson appointed like promoted one person from within the cabinet and then had to you know appoint someone new to that role and you know it could have spiraled into a little bit of a bigger reshuffle whereas this was just a a direct replacement but I think in terms of the wider significance of it Conservative MPs are very very happy about the appointment I think that his stock went up perversely when he resigned as Boris Johnson's Chancellor last year after you know losing that power struggle with Dominic Cummings I think that he earned the respect of colleagues. He was already well liked, but earned the respect of colleagues for sort of standing up for himself there. And then I think just given the the balance of opinion in the Conservative Party, I think that Conservative MPs are quite happy in general that he takes a slightly more hawkish approach to lockdown restrictions in that he, in, in media interviews over the past year, has talked about 
the need to end the restrictions and get back to normal as soon as possible. He gave a quote last May about how, you know, you should be trying to run the economy hot as much as possible, which was, you know, the same view that Rishi Sunak took privately. I think that maybe it'll change a little bit because he is running the health brief. So he has a different set of priorities. But even from everything that he said today, he's clearly not going to take exactly the same approach as Matt Hancock to things like border restrictions or more lockdown measures later in the year, potentially. So I think that we could see a bit of a shift. But I think the even bigger thing is actually just the fact that he is a former chancellor back in the fold. And he will be engaged in quite a lot of big negotiations with his direct successor in Rishi Sunak. They have some big issues to discuss on social care, among other things. And I think Sajid Javid will just be very well placed to take Rishi Sunak on because he's in the rare position of understanding how the Treasury works, unlike... Mm unlike Matt Hancock, who has never been Chancellor. So I think that, we, I mean, we were already sort of hearing about tensions between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. And so I think that they, they could maybe step up a notch as Sajid Javid and, and Rishi Sunak go, go toe-to-toe on, on various issues. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Today we have a question from Luca Tiratelli. Is the average Labour MP surprised at how badly Starmer's leadership is going? So we've all been talking to people in the Labour Party, mainly because of the upcoming Batley and Spend by-election on Thursday, which looks to be a very tight race. It's a Labour seat, but only held marginally. And there's all sorts of different factors that could affect the result in that seat. But Keir Starmer's leadership has, has of course, become one of the key discussion points in, in this upcoming by-election. Alva, do you find that Labour MPs you're speaking to are losing faith in their leader? Yeah, well, not sort of losing faith in him more over the past week than maybe over the past month or since that ill-fated reshuffle that we've talked a lot about. I think that at that moment... Lots of Labour MPs just lost faith that Keir Starmer knows what he's doing. That that I think they felt that that was 
the wrong way to respond to the defeat in Hartlepool. And they sort of amplified a narrative of labour loss, which maybe didn't need to be the case because it was more of a mixed bag for labour in those local election results. So I think that they were, were at a funny point, as you say, we're waiting for Batley on Thursday with the result coming in sort of in the early hours of Friday morning. And I think that the new thing is a huge amount of frustration among, certainly among MPs I've been speaking to, particularly Muslim Labour MPs, this feeling that Keir Starmer is really, really unpopular with Muslim voters in particular. And I think this may be slightly new experience of feeling like he is just not an asset for them in their community so one like labor muslim mp was saying was saying to me that you just you know that you just can't talk about Keir on the doorstep with muslim voters that you talk about labor but you don't mention him and that's from someone who who would typically be quite loyal so i think that that's maybe a new thing um but the and i'd be interested to know if that tallies with with your experience in it but i suppose in in general, I think that there has been a bit of a wobble in confidence in Keir Starmer's abilities since that first reshuffle. And now there, you know, there are the beginnings of a new team. There have been some changes. The party is braced for a really close, tough by-election. But maybe the surprise has, has worn off and they're now just hoping to, you know, to see some new people there's still some vacancies like head of communications they're waiting to see and, and withholding judgment in a lot of cases until a new team is in place yeah I think I think my experience tallies with yours particularly with what you were saying about Muslim Labour MPs mm. I think there's maybe been a bit of a realization among them that the feeling in the community is is you know is quite strong in terms of negative views, obviously everyone has their own opinion. You know, you can't treat certain voters as just a, a block that all think the certain way. But I think there is there is this realisation, particularly with some polling that the Labour Muslim Network commissioned from Servation, which showed that actually there has been a drop even on the 2019 general election um, sentiment among Muslim voters. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So there's been a drop and I think that's something that Labour MPs who either represent seats with a lot of Muslim voters or MPs who are Muslim themselves are quite concerned about this and don't feel like Keir Starmer perhaps has appreciated how much of a issue it is and it's almost mm-hmm. the se- it's almost similar I think we've said this before but it's it's similar to hearing you know perhaps other voices talking about how certain voters feel left behind and dislocated from Labour and Labour's taken them for granted, but it's just, you know, a different community in in seats with different dynamics this time, um, which kind of adds to Keir Starmer's woes. It doesn't suggest that he's sort of sacrificed one section of voters for another successfully. It it suggests that he's sort of losing voters left, left, right and centre. So I think that has definitely come up as, as as an issue. And perhaps it has taken MPs a little bit by surprise. I think Keir Starmer was, mm. you know, in general for whatever voter seen as a, as a safer pair of hands perhaps than, than Jeremy Corbyn. But I think the change in, in foreign policy outlook that Keir Starmer's leadership has represented has has resonated more with, with voters than perhaps some people expected it to. And I think in terms of the average position of a Labour MP, I'd say that you're right and that they're withholding their judgment 
I think there's an expectation that if Labour loses Batley, there's not necessarily going to suddenly be a leadership challenge. But I think there will be voices who call for him to resign from within the party. As one Labour MP put it to me, I don't think there's going to be a leadership campaign over the summer because there doesn't seem to be the appetite for that. But so many doubts will be creeping in among people who have otherwise given him a chance. Mm, and, and there's actually, I think, a surprising strength of feeling among MPs on this, particularly what you were saying about, you know, certain groups of voters being taken for granted. So one quite loyal Labour MP was saying to me this morning, because I'm planning on writing a piece on this later today, which listeners should look out for, that, you know, they said, you see a, you know, you see a brown face opening the door and you assume they're voting Labour. And that's been Labour's problem mm. for years. They themselves are uh, like a brown Labour MP. But I think that there was a real sort of bitterness to that when they said it. And, you know, I think that they are hoping that maybe after this by-election, some of the concerns that actually Labour Muslim Network has been raising for a while will resonate more with the mm. leadership. But the thing is that, I mean, there, there were some slightly mad stories over the weekend about plans for a leadership challenge. But certainly, I think you and I and Stephen, who's on holiday this week, I think we are all kind of on the same page and all hearing the same thing, that that wouldn't be likely, there wouldn't be an appetite for it over the summer, that he simply hasn't been in place for too long. And you can, you know, you can only remove a leader once. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's any appetite for a leadership challenge over the summer. It just means that the real changes that could be brought about after it are the things that were going to happen anyway. So the new head of comms is already being recruited. Everyone already knows that Labour really needs a strategy. They are planning on getting one soon. (laughs) (laughs) You know, even just deputy head of comms, like all all of these, or even, you know, a more developed policy programme, those things are already in the pipeline. And a lot of changes will be taking place after Batley and Spen, but they would be happening anyway. So it might change the mood music, but I'm not sure if it's going to change anything in terms of what Keir Starmer and his team do differently or, you know, if they do anything that they weren't already planning on doing. There were there, there was a feeling that there would be a big sort of wave of opposition if 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 Labour loses Batley and Spen. Diane Abbott, the former Home Secretary, wrote that piece. Do you remember that he should resign, that Keir Starmer should resign if Labour mm. loses the by-election? But I think in a way, the way that this by-election is playing out, there's been some quite nasty stuff over the weekend about how Labour activists are being treated in the seat um, when they're going around campaigning, particularly the Labour candidate, Kim Leadbeater, who has, there've been some some clips of people sort of following her down the, down the road, sort of verbally harassing her about LGBT issues and, and other things. So I think the way the campaign is playing out almost get, almost allows Keir Starmer the benefit of a doubt, uh, benefit of the doubt, doesn't it? Because obviously there are some people acting in bad faith in that campaign and sort of trying to stir up ill feeling towards the Labour campaign that goes beyond just matters of policy. And I think perhaps there might be more of a feeling of solidarity afterwards whatever mm. happens because it's 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 been really nasty the way that the way that the Labour candidate has been treated no matter the mistakes that were made by the leader's office or or by the local party or whatever in their in in their approach to the by-election. Yeah and I don't think that anyone would have seen that that footage of Kim Leadbeater being shouted at on Friday by a far-right mm. activist and not have really really been quite 
moved and disturbed by it, given that you know her own sister was murdered by a far right activist not very far from there. I think you know there's something incredibly chilling about it, and I think that it has maybe, or certainly my expectation was the same as yours, Anush, that it has maybe changed the tone a bit. But then from speaking more to Labour MPs today, I was actually slightly surprised that they are still prepared to make very robust criticisms of the leadership against this bigger context of that campaign turning incredibly Mm -hmm. nasty and I, I was just, I, I was surprised. I mean, I think they're absolutely entitled to, and it's not directed towards Kim Ledbetter at all, but that the, the slightly chilling effect of the nastiness of the campaign hasn't actually stopped the Labour MPs that I've been speaking to having really, really robust criticisms of Keir Starmer and feeling all those resentments that I was, you know, just describing of just... Um, a sense of taking Muslim voters a bit for granted. It's not just, I think, maybe former Labour voters who are Muslim in Batley and Spen saying that, but certainly the MPs themselves are now saying mm, it. That's so interesting. Yeah, and I think nothing can really take away the sort of... So, so, the, some of them sound so baffled about why Tracy Braben was was able to even run for the West Yorkshire mayoral election, why she was able to stand down from being an MP when she did, why there wasn't an anticipation that George Galloway mm. would stand in a seat like this. You know, there, there, does, there do seem to have been a lot of missteps that are unforgivable, re- unforgivable regardless of the, the context of the by-election and sort of who's got involved in its politics since, since the campaigning began. Mm. And I think that there's just a general confusion on Keir Starmer's approach to or you know I suppose specific like messaging to Muslim voters because certainly the MPs I've been speaking to just sort of don't understand why the policy hasn't hasn't materially changed on Israel and Palestine since Ed Miliband I mean it, it has on Kashmir but I think that MPs sort of don't understand why even on areas where the messaging could have been a little bit clearer there's been what what you know some of them have been describing as a, mm. as a vacuum and and you know they want again like these are often these are like MPs who would tend to be quite loyal to Keir Starmer sort of saying that you know a, a line about Gaza at PMQs a few weeks ago sounded a, a bit rehearsed in in the words of one of them I think there just is a, a surprising almost level of of resentment at how how this campaign has been been going and a bit of surprise at how Keir Starmer goes down on on doorsteps. Yes and I think a frustration with the complacency as well because I don't think like you say I don't think the the stance on Israel-Palestine has changed but I think it's the emphasis and the tone Mm. even if that means that you're not saying as much as you used to you know that that does get noticed and I think perhaps I was speaking to to one MP who was saying there's there's a frustration with 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 that attitude because it suggests that you know our oh, Boris Johnson is always going to be seen as worse than us on you know Israel Palestine or you know there's been briefings from the Labour campaign on the ground in Batley saying you know if you if you vote for Galloway then you let in a Tory MP and he's just going to be lobby fodder for a Prime Minister who is cozying up to Modi, for example. So that, that, there's there's that sort of complacent assumption that voters will just think, oh, well, the Tories are worse on X issue than, than Labour is, so, you know, might as well plump for Labour. Actually, mm. that's not 
what voters feel in seats like this anymore. I mean, well, this is what one MP was was suggesting, was that Keir Starmer, because he's leader of the Labour Party, should be seen as one of our own from the perspective of, of a Muslim voter, whereas Boris Johnson's views on these things are less relevant because he's not seen as one of their own. So basically, Labour is held to a higher standard than the Conservative Party, and that perhaps hasn't been appreciated. And I think that's a really interesting point, because whenever I brought up Boris Johnson, particularly with someone who was actually a Labour Party member who was campaigning for Galloway, who I spoke to when I was up there um, reporting last week, I was saying, well, what about, you know, what if everyone votes for, for Galloway who would have voted for Labour, and then you let in a Tory MP? Isn't that much worse for you know, whatever foreign policy issues you're most concerned about. And he was saying, well, you know, Boris Johnson is Boris Johnson. He's never suggested otherwise. Keir Starmer is supposed to be sticking up for the interests of people like me. And, and they haven't said enough on 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 the violence in, in Gaza. And I thought that was quite an interesting point. And it's interesting that the person to have picked that up was a, a, a Labour MP, a Muslim Labour MP who was talking to me about that. But it doesn't seem to have well, maybe it has now registered in, in the leader's office, but it doesn't seem to have been, you know, fully appreciated before the campaign got well underway. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Kellyan, and my colleague, Alva Ray. We're produced by Chris Stone and Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.